are trying to focus on the things you have control over. And what, what's the next thing in front of you? And what control do you have? The next next thing, not, not the last, not the last hole, not the third three button row, but what we're trying to do in that moment is look at what you have in your forward view, not in your rear view mirror, but right out the front windshield and what do you have control over. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, I go all 12 rounds in this match with Coach Jamie Green of the Duke Blue Devils men's team. This one is a long one, but with that, there is a lot of information. And this guy is just a, just a cool guy that I'd, I would just love to hang out with and, and learn more from. Um, so I know that you can learn a lot from him. And of course, uh, with this pretty much an hour-long episode, uh, there's going to be a lot of great info. So listen up and uh, pay attention and get the most out of it. All right, let's get into it. Jamie Green from the Duke men's golf team. Um, I'm here at Duke University. Been here 11 years now, just to start, about to start, excuse me, our, uh, our 12th year. Uh, as far as the spring goes in 2019, we're excited uh, to have a, a pretty experienced crew uh, to start the year. Had a, a pretty solid fall, and we'll maybe chat a little bit about our team, but uh, wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. I actually grew up in Ohio, uh, was a college golfer myself at the Division three level, and then got into coaching after I was uh, attaining my PGA Class A um, certificate up in Hanover, New Hampshire at Dartmouth College. And so that's where I actually got into the, the field of coaching. I worked for Bill Johnson, who was a Hall of Fame coach at Dartmouth, and his wife, Izzy, who was the women's coach. So it was a great environment to learn. I uh, went down to Auburn, was the assistant coach there for two years for the men, went over to UNC Chapel Hill, was the assistant there for four years with the men. Uh, and then I started as a head coach in 2003 at UNC Charlotte and was there uh, for almost six years before I headed over to Duke. So there's the, there's the quick resume and uh, look forward to, to talking a little bit about golf and golf, golfer's mindset. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like you've, you've been around the block a few times uh, just as far a as... blocks. Yeah, a couple blocks. <laughs> uh, just, you know, like variety of schools. Um, and maybe you can kind of touch on what carries over and maybe what doesn't carry over as far as your coaching style or um, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think truthfully, regardless of the school that I've been, um, it's, it's been pretty consistent. It, at least it's worked out well for me. And obviously I jumped on board as an assistant coach at a couple of those places. Um, but I was lucky that each head coach there kind of saw similarly to the, to the way that I did, which was uh, essentially it's kind of like the Division three model where our coach would tell us, you know, academics are – are number one, but in in our sport on our team, golf is so closely number two. You can't usually tell a difference. Mm. So you know we we usually find guys that um, have some pretty high pursuits academically, and not necessarily you know that they're all trying to be uh, you know brain surgeons or, or rocket scientists, but they want to be they want to be successful wherever they are, whether that was at Auburn or you know, at Dartmouth at an Ivy League school or, or, you know, at UNC Charlotte, we found guys that whatever they majored in, whatever they took on academically, um, they, they took as a, a serious commitment. And so, it, you know, it wasn't just, you'd think that would just be a, you know, an automatic when you're at a college, but obviously at different places, depending on the rigor, um, you could have different, different personality styles that fit. But the one that fit with me 
was the one that, you know, if you show up and put your, you know, your hard hat and take your lunch pail to, to class and get that done every day when you get to the golf course to practice, you're, you're calmer, you're more confident, you know, you've got a lot of self-belief. Um, I think those who, who maybe kind of skip around and, and do the minimum just to kind of get through on the academic side, sometimes they'll struggle a little bit on the golf course and they don't even know why. And, and it could be that, you know, there actually is a little stress in the back of their mind about that thing that they're late on or the class that they missed. So, you know, we try to get guys that, that fit that model and uh, it's worked really well no matter which school I was at. Right. So when, I guess when it comes to helping your players and your involvement in their golf and their lives, like what, I guess, what kind of role do you take when they, like if they, if they do have, you know, they're behind on three classes worth of work. Cause you know, I, I played college golf as well. And I know it's the golf itself is like a, a strong part-time job, if not a full-time job and let alone yeah. school and social. So it's when players get behind and, it's maybe bleeding onto the course. What kind of things do you do to kind of help them? Well, I mean, I think just acknowledging it is, is maybe the most important part for them. Just, you know, giving the, giving it a face where, Hey, I'm, I'm really stressed. I, I've either got lack of sleep or, um, you know, this, this paper's on my mind or I really struggled on that first quiz. Just, you know, give it, give it some awareness and then, you know, recognize there's maybe only so much you're going to be able to bite off and chew in one day and just take each day that you're on. And that, if that means, you know, our strength coach, for example, we've got a really excellent guy that he and I've worked together at Duke now for almost nine years. Um, you know, we're, we're very much in sync and our players understand that, you know, he's, I, I asked him probably about five or six years ago to start tracking their sleep as they came in. And so essentially it's not just about, you know, how many pounds are on the dumbbell. It's about how many hours you were able to actually you know, get your head on a pillow. And if they're, you know, if they're there and they're just looking haggard or it doesn't even matter what the reason why you'll send them home, they're not going to get anything out of that workout. If, you know, if, they, mm. if they haven't really been able to get much sleep. So, you know, I think because of our openness about it, I think the guys are, are genuine with us in return. You know, I, it's, it's college. There's, there could be a party or there could be a late game or there could be whatever, but you know, our guys really, I think, enjoy the environment of that early morning workout. So even though I've asked, Hey, do we want to do this in the evening when it's in the wintertime date? They, they all say, no, we want to get up and, and knock it out early in the day. And so they understand that, you know, we're going to cut them a little slack if they've had a little bit too much on their plates, but at the same time, um, we want the guys that want to be serious about it. So, you know, that tends to not happen too often, but Again, just kind of making sure that we're open about it on both sides. And, uh, you know, I, I like for our guys, obviously, to, to own things and, and be in control and take care of what they can control and not worry about what they can't control. And so, you know, if a guy is telling me, hey, coach, I don't think I can be at practice for a couple of days. You know, I've got this paper coming. Um, my, my response usually is, how long have you known you had that paper? <laughs> and is it going to take, is it really going to take 48 straight hours? You know, obviously, you're going to get some sleep, but... Um, you know, obviously the prior preparation was going to be key with you knowing what was coming up on our golf schedule. Mm. So, you know, we try to be very direct about that, um, and, and certainly cut them, cut them that slack and, and help them be successful academically. Cause it doesn't do us any good on the golf side. If, you know, we make them stay for that, that, uh, extra putting drill or whatever it is. Um, if that gets them behind academically, mm. we're going to, we're going to get bit on the backside anyway. So it's just, just good communication and hopefully that takes care of it. Yeah, and it sounds like you're super balanced uh, from all angles. Was that 
was that something you developed over time, the, the kind of holistic balance? or, or... I gotta, I'll be honest. I, I would say probably it was uh, a big part of where I was when I grew up. I, I played at Ohio Wesleyan for Dr. Richard Gordon, who was kind of a pioneer in, in golf and golf psychology. And, you know, he was a, a great leader in our game. Uh, even at the Division three level, he started our Golf Coaches Association. You know, I just had mentioned to you off air that I came from that convention and uh, he was one of the very few guys that started that association. So he was, he was really on the front edge, even at a Division three school. Uh, and he was the first one to talk about that balance. Um, but that being said, as a coach, you know, all of a sudden when you're young and energized, I, I played for him when he was in his late 60s and early 70s. He was in a different frame of mind than the fiery one that he used to tell me he was. I think when I was younger, uh, I probably expected an awful lot from our guys. But that being said... Uh, I also jumped into a couple of situations at teams where I don't know that, you know, academics along with golf were really, truly their top priorities. I, I think they, they let a couple of those slip to the side. And, you know, I didn't, we didn't shake the trees and remove anybody for that. They, they were there where they, they ended up. But at the same time, we tried to focus on recruiting guys who really wanted to, to see how good a golfer they could become and, and not lose sight of being a strong student at the same time. So it was really in recruiting and finding the guys that fit that balance. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I would say even the longer I'd been at Duke, you know, the, the more you had to step back um, and recognize that these, these guys really are giving it everything they've got. And some days if it's just not uh, not going to be able to work out where they can't put in the time on the golf side. We just have to understand that that's the way oh. it's going to be. Yeah. And as long as their as long as their passion is there, and as long as their drive and their dedication is still there, um, you know, we we work with them. So, are you kind of a more reactive coach, or are you pretty proactive and um, in creating, I guess, environments or or tasks that players got to do? And I'd like to think that we're we're proactive but i think you have to react at times i mean you, you know you're going to have fire drills and you're going to have stressful situations you know on the golf course or on um and so that's that's the thing is maybe just being ready uh you know there's a lot of psychology about that in terms of um you know what, what does a pilot do in order to make sure that they can get their plane in the air they have to prepare for for disaster they have to prepare for emergency and, and how do they handle that and you know, if you're overly emotional or you don't have a plan, you're going to have a hard time succeeding or, or keeping that plane, you know, in good working order. So we, we try to do our best with the players to make sure they are ready for all of the wild things that get thrown at them. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, while that's a proactive thing, that takes work. And, it, you know, it's not just it's not going to happen. The guys have to really sit down and think about those things. We talk with them. Uh, we do it as a team. We try to prepare for a lot of things. But at the same time, we, we also recognize that you just can't control others. So it, it is proactive, uh, but when you have to react, we try to do it in a, you know, in a calm manner, in a very matter-of-fact manner, um, and just and deal with as much positivity as we can. So speaking to the proactive side of it and the preparation side, what kind of things do you do uh, mentally to prepare your players or maybe – maybe also the reactive part of it when when bad things happen or good things happen like what what kind of um tactics have you put in place to to deal with the mental game because it sounds like you've covered the bases with golf and fitness and we we try to i mean obviously we're everybody's different and unique and i think that's the other thing that i think we hopefully as a staff we try to recognize each year 
um, is that we want to have this team environment. The guys come to play on a team because they want to be in that group setting. But at the same time, everybody comes to us with different backgrounds. You know, obviously many of them are very uh, successful on the golf and academic side when they show up. But, you know, everybody has different family situations. Some of them are only children. Some of them have a bunch of brothers and sisters. Some of them are, you know, we've got a guy from New Zealand coming next year. I've got a player from Singapore, one from France, got people from North Carolina. So Mm -hmm. they're going to come from all different places and all different backgrounds. and, And we have to recognize that we meet them where they are and address what they need and also highlight what they're good at. I mean, I, I think if we're doing those things, um, we're not expecting something that's, you know, out of the ordinary for them. But at the same time, we're, we're trying to hold them to a high standard and we want them to determine those standards. I, I think that's where we go. And as a specific, um, you know, as a group sort of thing, for example, I might give them things to read. I'm, I'm a big comedy guy, so I'll listen, I'll listen to stand-up comedy on the road with them or mm-hmm. on the way to the golf course. I, I'm just a pretty strong believer that, you know, if, you're, if your brain is in a, a relaxed and happy and you know, almost joyous setting, um, you, you know, you're going to perform better. Now, I understand that in certain tasks, um, you know, if you're <laughs> – I don't know how that fits of being a linebacker in football or how that fits, you know, in, in other certain endeavors, but – I do know that when when you are in a good state and you're don't you're not in an anxious state that you're probably going to be more creative and you're probably going to enjoy the experience more. So we we try to do things like that. I have them reading a book right now called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Anker, and I'm you know I'm not trying to sell that or anything. I, I just I try to do things where guys are are you know opening up to to new ideas, and that's one area where I feel like it's so easy in our game to be self-deprecating or, you know, it's almost, um, not cool. You know, if you fist pump a butt going in, depending Mm -hmm. on who you're playing with or what the environment is. So we, we try to get them in a place where they can do what they need to do to enjoy the experience. But at the same time, sometimes that's opening them up to, you know, just the acceptance Mm. of having a good time out there as much as possible. So what, you know, when a player, um, I guess when a player is, you know, when you're out there with them on the course and you're in the heat of, of a tournament and maybe things are going south a little bit and you can tell they're starting to get that self-deprecating, bad self-talk going, what do you do in that moment to help them? Depends a little on who it is. So, for example, if it's a guy that I know has been, you know, working on quieting his mind or even practicing some meditation, I might I might literally get right there next to him and, and just say, Hey, when you get a chance to step aside, take a couple of deep breaths, you know, when, when it's not your turn to hit golf shots, look away, close your eyes. Let's, let's try to resettle and, you know, hit the reset button. Um, and if it's somebody else who that's not their way, you know, I might, I might crack a joke in there. I might do something just to sort of lighten the mood, but most importantly than anything else, we're trying to focus on the things you have control over. And what, what's the next thing in front of you and what control do you have? The next, next thing, not, not the last, not the last hole, not the third three button in a row. You know, I, we may come on them at any point. I could be standing on a part three. I could be on a part five. I could be walking with a, a guy and witness it happen. But what we're trying to do in that moment is look at what you have that's in, in your forward view, not in your rear view mirror, but right out the front windshield. And what do you have control over? And that's usually making a decision. You know, a decision on what my target is, on what the environment is, what the lie of the golf ball is. 
you know, and, and then turning yourself into an artist or an athlete and visualizing that shot and taking your breath and going through your routine, all those things that you have control over. We try to immerse them in that as much as possible. And, you know, that either produces a good result or a not so good result, but the next thing is to try to react in a way that's appropriate. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do. Obviously, players, that's the thing that everybody from Tiger down to the, you know, the person who's a weekend player battles is how to deal with that tough shot. But, you know, as much as they can just be present and, and live in the now and what's in front of me, the, the better hopefully they'll get out of the of a downward slide. Hmm. That's really good. Uh, can't argue with that uh, philosophy. Um, so I did, I, I was, you know, obviously Corn Ferry Q School, and you mentioned it, you were uh, down there watching it. And your player was it Chandler Eaton? Is that right? Yeah. Um, senior. So yeah, senior. Georgia. Right. Yeah. So he would be graduating in May, but decided to try Q school anyway. Is that how that well, went? So here, yeah, the rule changed a few years ago where they allowed amateurs to not only enter Q school for the Corn Ferry Tour, um, but you know play all the way up and and not decide whether or not they were going to play prof- professional golf until their their time with the qualifier was finished, you know, whether that was after the first, you know, pre-qualifier back early in the fall in September or whether it was the first stage or the second stage or the finals, um, you know, that was a, a pretty massive change in the way that the mm-hmm. PGA Tour ran its its qualifying system. So there were a few college players that over the last few years have given that a shot and, and a couple of them um, went through that process and turned pro and, and didn't finish out their year in college or a couple of them, I think we maybe went back to school, but we're, I don't know. And at some level had some status. Um, a few guys tried it and then went back to college and remained an amateur and just said, all right, I'm going to try this again next year. And usually that was the guy that didn't make it all the way to the qualifying final stage. Um, you know, the guys that make it to that final stage, will have some level of status on the Corn Ferry Tour. Now, it may be very, very limited in, in their conditional status if they don't finish that week very well in December. Um, but, you know, if they finish in the top 40, they're going to have some guaranteed starts on the Corn Ferry Tour. And so when they start, that is kind of up to them. But obviously, I'm, I'm you know, kind of giving the PGA Tours a bio here, but they, they reshuffle the order after however many tournaments. So it ends up being a pretty big decision if you make it to that final stage. Mm-hmm. Now, Chandler was in a situation last summer where he, like a couple of other players on our team, um, tried to qualify for the U.S. Open, made it through the first stage and and into the sectional qualifying. He made it to the finals and played at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. And then once he was there, he made the cut. So, you know, he's in a he was in a very unique situation um, because the PGA Tour at that point through the Corn Ferry Tour allowed him to pass by pre-qualifying and first stage. Mm. So he jumped right into second stage and that. You know, that's something that he and his family talked to us about at the end of the summer and said, you know, this is just too good of an opportunity to turn down. And, mm. and we don't we didn't blame him. You know, I, I got to think if it were my own son, I would have given him the same advice because that second stage was right after our fall season. So he didn't miss anything. Mm. So he went to second stage, made it, went to finals. And then I went down there to, to watch and support him. But, yeah, ultimately what was going to happen next was going to be a decision for Chandler. You know, we, we weren't going to pressure him into anything. Obviously, his goal, he, he went in there. All, all feet in the deep end of the pool and, and wanted to try to finish in the top 40. He had, ended up finishing tied for 41st, which is pretty mm. pretty brutal um, for him and for a lot of players who were there with that one top 40 goal in mind. Mm. Um, but actually, you're, you're talking to me literally on the cusp of him making a decision 
to not play professional golf this spring. So even mm. though he was just barely outside that number, um, he, he kind of searched the soul and talked to his family and talked to a lot of advisors. Some of them were Duke former players who were playing professional golf. And, you know, he felt like he was going to be the most settled, the most happy, the most fulfilled if he came back and finished his, mm. his senior season with his team. So we're elated for that, but we, have, we would have also been ready to be supportive if he you know, wanted to go play professionally because his status was so high, he was going to get a bunch of starts this spring. Mm. So, you know, we just found that out. I know his teammates are thrilled. Um, it's it's going to be a, a lot of fun this spring with him back in the lineup. Mm. So what kind of involvement did you have with him, or was he kind of just down there on his own and you just went and watched him? I just went and watched. Um, I mean, actually, there's some NCAA rules in place where I, I, I wasn't able to have a lot of direct any sort of coaching contact or couldn't caddy for him. If I did that, oh, okay. I would have, had, we would have had to count those days as tournament days for oh, him. Interesting. So okay. that was not only a you know kind of a compliance choice, but also his dad has caddied very well for him at various tournaments, caddied for him at the U.S. Open when they made the cut, caddied for him at the second stage at Q School here this fall. So you know, they had a good thing going and, and probably would continue to go if they, mm. if he was going to play professionally, but um, at least for a little while. So he was on the bag and, and they work really well. Obviously, he knows his son. Scott Eaton played college golf himself, as did his mom, played college golf, Kim. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting, um, you know, college golf background family. And he had a great week. I mean, heck, you, you're, you know, one shot here or there. Mm. There's an awful lot of professional golfers that didn't even get there. Um, you know, really, really good ones. And in fact, it's, we go back and look at it. I was talking to a Duke player recently, a uh, former player who's out there playing professionally. He said, you know, hey, I, he's on the PGA Tour. Um, and he said, listen, I, I never made it through the final stage. I'm, I'm out here because I got through at the Latino America mm-hmm. PGA Tour. Um, you know, I was the leading money winner. And you look at Brooks Kepka. Brooks never made it through the Corn Ferry Tour final stage, neither did Jordan Spieth. I mean, those guys tried it, didn't make it, went another route. You mm-hmm. know, if Jordan Spieth doesn't hold out that bunker shot to win his PGA Tour event, <laughs> mm-hmm. who knows what happens. You know, yeah. he had to go back to Q school. So it was a big, big deal to be there and to be successful there. Um, you know, I wanted it to be a great experience for him. And so I tried my best to, to be supportive in every step, uh, not, not get in his kitchen and, and coach him necessarily, but just say, hey, we're we're here because we care for you. We love you. We want you to be successful. You earned this opportunity. You know, you didn't just go and pay for it and take it. You you showed up and and made it to the U.S. Open final, you know, final Sunday. Mm. And so he earned it. Mm. That's that's awesome. And and you know that's a, a huge decision. And I mean, he sounds more mature than me. I'm, I mean, you know, he's like making wise decisions that's awesome um he's a he's a special kid and you know i could sit here and talk about every one of our players and, and guys that i've been fortunate to coach but he's a he's a, a unique guy with a with a really good perspective on life and and you know maturity beyond his age so mm-hmm. and some of that maturity is recognizing that i don't have all the answers you know mm-hmm. and who do i ask and who do i can confide in and, and who do i look for counsel and he's really smart about that and obviously he's got a very good family that that helps him with that as well but you know, he, he felt something inside, I think, this fall where it was tough to be in two places at once. You know, he, he was thinking about his team and playing with us in the fall, but also knowing, I don't know if this is going to be my last fall, you know, playing college golf, or my last, you know, my last semester. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he battled with that a little bit. He, he played well this fall, but not great. So I, I think that maybe was another um, you know, eye-opener for him. That to play your best for him is to be in a real clear state of 
peace, you know, knowing where I am, knowing where I'm going to be, knowing what I'm comfortable doing and uh, where he was, he felt comfortable was playing college golf this spring. Well, that's good. That's a good story. Uh, player coach kind of story. Um, so kind of shift gears a little bit. I, I work with some junior players and, um, and a lot of them are kind of, you know, the, the bridge to get across from high school golf to college golf is, is kind of foggy. Uh, a lot of times I know it wasn't my own life and it is for them and I can tell, and it's hard to know what should I be doing to be at that high level. And, you know, your, your school and recruiting is, is on a different level than a lot where you're pretty sure who you're going to have probably by, you know, sometimes sophomore year of, of high school and, you know, a lot of, most of the time junior year, but even younger than that, what would you tell a player? This is what you need to be doing. This is how you need to be preparing to be at a high level D one school. Yeah. The question is something that is going to come up all the time. You know, actually the NCAA has changed a good bit the last couple of years. They've made some changes in recruiting rules that we have, and, and we're not even allowed at this point, um, to take a phone call, to receive a phone call hmm. from somebody who's younger than their junior year in high school. It used to be, you know, they could come on unofficial visits, which means they spent their money, mom and dad, if, or on their own, they, they show up, we don't pay for anything, but we could talk to them on our campus, show them everything, everything we had at, at Duke or whatever university, um, you know, have real recruiting conversations with them. Once they were on our campus, pretty much all bets were off in, in terms of what we talked about, you know, Teams could make verbal offers and say, hey, we want you on the team. This is how much scholarship we expect will be available, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and mom and dad are right there if they want to be there with them. So that's why the recruiting calendar was so early and kids were deciding things so, so soon. Um, but the NCAA, through a lot of advisement and a lot of it being junior you know, athletes and their parents, prospective student athletes, um, saying this isn't healthy. This isn't a great thing for us. So look, what can we do to make this better for everybody? And and I don't. I think most anybody in a business would say it's not a great thing for kids to decide where they're going to college, um, or certainly to feel any pressure about it. But mm. to make that decision when you're, you know, not even on the doorstep mm. of being a college student. So when these kids were making decisions in eighth grade and ninth grade, mm -hmm. it just was nuts. So you know, we tried honestly at a place like Duke or Stanford or a place you know, maybe in the Ivy League that has really strong academic standards to get in, um, even though we may have a little you know, a little help at the admissions office for a few spots every year, it, it's still not easy once you're here as a student. And so we, if we don't have a, an academic record that's long enough in high school, we don't really have a great predictor to know whether somebody's going to be ready for this. Now, I'm not going to say that we or Stanford haven't had kids decide, hey, if, if you'll let me do well in academics in high school, I want to play for you. And we say, sure, okay, you're the guy, we want to wait, but you still have to take care of things academically. Um, that did happen sometimes, but not very often for our schools. And so now it's it's pretty rare that, that a young man hopefully has to even be in a position where he feels like or the parents feel like they have to make that decision too early. Now it's it's almost um, hopefully freed them up to prior to their junior year um, in high school. They can focus on golf. They can focus on another sport if they want to. They can certainly take their time and make sure they're focusing on their academics. And that's that's the thing that I would tell anybody who's in that position, who's on the younger side. And, and really, obviously, even when you get to your junior and senior year, it's at that point, it's they may know where they're going to go. They may not. But it's still about making sure that you're ready for that 
academic environment and that golf team. So usually that's being really good at, at time management. I know that's the phrase that's thrown around so much. It's, it's almost, um, you know, hard to describe what it means, but you know, whether that's a, a true daily planner or an agenda or, you know, just kind of ticking things off the checklist, um, being really good at those things and being really good at managing your time. And that means, you know, the evenings after dinner, before you go to bed, that means when it's a downtime on the weekend, um, it's not that you have to work all the time at golf or golf, golf or school, but it's not letting things slip too far away from you. So we, whenever we do have a chance to speak at, at a junior you know, clinic or a camp or something like that, those are usually the areas that we're talking about. Um, and not in a way to, to scare them, but just to say, hey, listen, I don't think you're going to talk to any academic advisor in, in high school, any, any parent who's going to tell you anything different. It's just really about deciding if this thing, college golf or another sport, is what you want to experience as a big part of your college um, you know, experience. And if it is, it usually means that you have to probably – take on multiple things at once and not let things slip through the cracks. So that that's probably the biggest thing. And then if you're a younger, you know, you're talking about somebody who's maybe in middle school or just starting high school and what sort of things to focus on. Um, you know, that's a multi-layered question. I mean, we could be talking about the golf side specifically, but just as a student athlete, to me, I, I would say try not to get too pigeonholed too early. You know, and, and what I mean by that is, leave yourself open to a lot of experiences, whether that's being, you know, on the band or whether that's being in in art or whether that's, you know, maybe studying something that you don't care for. Obviously you you're kind of forced to take certain subjects in high school, but, you know, let yourself maybe be open and not get too narrow in your thought. It's difficult to play multi-sport, you know, to be a multi-sport athlete these days, but I, I have to admit that if, if a kid has a chance to, I encourage that. I don't discourage it. So, you know, we're, we're actually recruiting a kid who was the quarterback on his high school team is a really small school. So he plays safety as well. He's a, you know, a, a shooting guard on the basketball team. And, and when the snow melts, he plays golf. Wow. So we, we're, we're still on board with guys that are, that are athletic because those are, we feel like the guys that can make changes as their bodies evolve a little bit more easily. Um, so that's, that's the advice that I would give them as much as is possible. Try not to get too narrow in your thinking, try to broaden it and look at everything with as big a lens as you can. So to kind of speak back to that time management part, um, and to fast forward back on when you're part of Duke men's team, what, you know, what does a, I guess just a daily routine of the men's team look like, uh, you know, is it, is it all physical practice? Is it, how, how does that play out as far as just daily routine? Sure. Well, the normal, just a normal work week for us in season, and this isn't a, a Duke men's golf number. This is the NCAA. When you're in season, we can schedule no more than 20 hours of golf related activities. So that might be a team meeting. That might be a, a strength workout. Um, that might be an individual one-on-one meeting. It, it could be going out and playing a qualifying round. But during the week, we can only do that for 20 hours. Now, that being said, there's a lot of other times that, that work out of that that we don't, you know, kind of put in quotes, have to count for compliance rules. So, for example, if you're in an airport traveling, you're not, we're not counting those hours. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that young man isn't away and doing things that are kind of golf-related. Now, maybe they could study or maybe they could – you know, kind of relax a little bit, but truthfully, there's still a lot of time in season that our guys are putting into being around the team or, 
or being invested in their golf. So that's the first thing to kind of be aware of. Um, you know, a, a work week, so to speak, when we're on the road and traveling is pretty consuming, not to mention the fact that you're, you're missing class and needing to catch up on that. But if it's just, you know, just sort of a day at home, we tend to work out three days a week in the morning at 7 a.m. Um, so the guys are getting up, you know, however early they need to, depending on how close they are to the, the weight room to be there on time. And then they work out generally from 7 to 8. Sometimes a guy will have an 8.30 class that's, you know, we try to work around that or they try to work around that because they'll know which days we're going to work out. But sometimes they can't. And they may just, you know, grab a, a quick smoothie or, or something on the way to class. Uh, usually guys will have two or three classes in the morning or two or three throughout the day. And then, you know, maybe grab lunch on campus or at the golf course when they get there. And then we may have practice or it may be almost an off day where the guys are doing their own thing, but most guys are in touch with their games almost every day. So let's say, for example, they were in class from, you know, 10 to 1, grab something at lunch. They may be practicing from 2.30 or 3 o'clock until dark. Uh, they may grab dinner together or on their own may do some tutor sessions or a study session, or they may just do their own thing. Uh, but generally the guys are putting in some study time and then getting to bed, you know, at a, at a pretty decent hour. So, you know, obviously guys have late nights, like I said earlier, but um, they, they really try to make sure that they're using their days. I think that's the, maybe the toughest adjustment that kids have when they come to college is that the schedule is, is not so um, specific to the same hours that a high school schedule would be. You know, sometimes, sure, some kids, they get to their senior year, maybe they have, you know, a, a couple of periods off, or maybe they don't start right away in the first class like some other seniors do. But truthfully, kind of the school day of a high school student is pretty pretty consistently the same. And for college, obviously, as most people know, it could be all over the map. You know, we, we might have a guy that has a class that has to be taken at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. You know, and, and obviously he's not studying for class um, for some other class at that time. So he has to use his hours in the morning when other people are in class. And so that's that ends up being a very personal situation. But it's really the adjustment to me comes when they have to realize when do I use my time to study? Because really it's not consistently the same as it was in high school. Mm-hmm. So it's recognizing whatever your schedule is going to appear as and. You know, that's truthfully, that's kind of the first thing that I do and and I'm in the midst of right now is I take all of our players' class schedules and, you know, plug it into an Excel sheet in all sorts of different colors. So Mm -hmm. I have an idea of where everybody is and where we can truthfully have some practice with everybody. And and most times, because we have guys that have such varied majors, we really don't have a lot of time to get everybody together at the same time. So it ends up being where we do maybe a team practice in the morning with a couple of guys and then a team practice in the afternoon with a few more. Mm. Uh, we try not to do that too much, but truthfully, we, we kind of have to certain days. Mm. But that's that's a normal day. Now, obviously, you could replace that if, if it is an afternoon where everybody has off. Let's say a Friday, for example, it tends to be an afternoon off for us. We'll a lot of times get a qualifying round in where everybody on the team is playing for a score that we'll use to evaluate who's going to go to that next tournament. And that obviously would take more time. You know, if we're playing 18 holes, they're going to get there and warm up for a solid 45 minutes or more if they have the chance. Go out and play their four-hour, if we hope, or four-hour round. Or if it's slow behind some folks, we, it might take longer. So it, it ends up being a long day. Um, you know, there are some rules in place with the NCAA where uh, you're not supposed to. I'm not saying never. some schools don't abide by this. I think it's a, a sort of a stretchy one, but... 
Um, truthfully, on a day that we have a workout, we're not supposed to be playing 18 holes unless they can get that done in three hours. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, that just doesn't happen. So we end up just having to do um, different things when we have a workout that morning. But, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a busy day and a busy week for most days. And, and um, you know, it's, it's really what you do in your downtime. It's, it doesn't, like you said, we talked about with balance. It doesn't mean you don't go to basketball games and you, and you don't do other things that are apart from academics and golf. Uh, but it's also making sure that you have the time to, to be successful in both of those areas. Hmm. So um, maybe a question more personal to you. Are you itching to win an NCAA championship? How does that kind of weigh on your mind on a yearly basis? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't think – it's on my mind very much throughout the year, to be honest with you. And I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if there's a good answer for that. Um, I, I think my goal is hopefully the same as all of our players, which is to play at the highest ability, to play at the highest level of which we're capable every single time we have a chance to compete. And usually what that means is a lot of planning in between those competitions, you know, a lot of practice, a lot of, you know, like I said, we might be reading books on happiness. We might be working with nutritionists. We might be, you know, um, using a, a new sleep detecting device to make sure that we're as good as we can be and getting uh, advancements on our games as at, at a high level so that when we do, when that flag goes up, so to speak, or the green light is on at a tournament, we're ready to go. And you know, and, and we give it our best every single week. And some weeks we win and we win by a lot. And sometimes we come up woefully short, but there's something to be learned from each one. And there's something to be valued that we did well, hopefully, at each at each mm -hmm. competitive opportunity. You know, the men's team at Duke has never won a national championship. We've been in the semifinals now that they've gone to match play. It's, it's more of a bracketology uh, situation with match play for the final eight teams. We've actually been to match play a few times mm -hmm. um, since they made that change in 2009. But, you know, hadn't won that big prize. And to me, I don't think that means that we haven't been successful or our guys haven't prepared themselves for the next step. We've got a lot of guys playing professional golf right now. If that ends up being what their, you know, their, their uh, job pursuit is, then they're ready for it. Hopefully we've got a lot of guys that have stepped up and are playing in all sorts of tours around the world. Um, but by the same token, we have also plenty of people that are out there, you know, whether in graduate degree programs or off in the working world that, you know, hopefully felt like they had a great experience chasing a national championship. So, you know, on a daily basis, I guess that's a, it's an overall answer to your question. I don't really think about a national championship very much, but that being said, I am driven and I think our players are driven to be as good as they can possibly be. And, you know, putting a label on that is maybe the tough part, mm -hmm. but as I, there's a lot of coaches, a lot of philosophies, a lot of, uh, you know, quotes that you could grab from a Vince Lombardi or, you know, Bill Belichick or whomever, Coach K, and most of them are going to be talking about the daily process. Yeah. They're not going to be talking about the national championship. You know, you do what you have control over as well as you can do it, and that means competing, that means evaluating, that means preparing, and when you do that well and better than anybody else, you have a real chance to win a national championship. Mm. Our women's team has won it seven times, <laughs> so it's it's, it's interesting to have our guys right there, same building, same practice area, you know, taking same classes, similar classes, and, and to see them do it. And, you know, Coach Brooks is, Dan Brooks is probably the most successful college golf coach 
at any level, men, women, you know, division one, two, three, junior college. Uh-huh. Um, and to have us be able to have that opportunity as a, as a team, as a staff, as players to watch what they do is a great opportunity for us. But, you know, our, our guys and myself, obviously we're driven, uh, to succeed at, at just as high a level. So do you have to work on your players to focus more on process over results or does that come pretty easy to them? No, I think it, it does take work, and some, yes, it is a little easier than others, uh, but like I said earlier in the conversation, I think it's meeting them where they are and where they want to be. I mean, some guys aren't ready to take a leap yet necessarily and get away from some of the um, you know result-oriented goals. I'd like to think that they are, and hopefully in the recruiting process, we start to steer them in that direction or find out who's in, in that place already, but yeah, it, it definitely is challenging. Um, you know, you, you don't, you're not going to get away from uh, Twitter land or, or, you know, mm-hmm. press clippings or whatever else might be out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more media on college golf now than there ever has been, and that's a great thing for us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, good, it's a good area for us to be in. But it, it also usually involves a lot of talk of championships and a lot of talk of results. And so, you know, that's – Something that I, I try to tell our guys, it's okay to just be aware of the fact that it's out there. You know, mm-hmm. we have we have boards that show, you know, what the lowest score in team history is and, and what the lowest individual score in a, in a tournament or individual round is. I, I want them to be aware of what those things are as something that drives them. But when they're out there competing, you know, you got to focus on the shot that's in front of you. You can't do anything about that big total at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we, we want them to be aware of what those things are, but not at the same time let them, you know, bounce them away from what's currently in front of them. Right. So I guess, you know, as we kind of maybe get closer to, to wrapping it up, uh, I got a, just a couple questions. Sure. What, what advice, because, you know, not everyone that would listen to this would be preparing for college or in college, but... You know, what advice would you give golfers, the vast majority of golfers that are older than college age, what it takes to be better? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you're you're a high level coach that knows his stuff, and I know you never claim to know everything, but you you've For got sure. a lot to say. <laughs> so uh, maybe you could speak um, to that. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great sport, right? I mean, it's there's there's a reason why people are listening to this this uh, podcast, and, and a reason why so many people enjoy the endeavor. And you know, for all the same reasons we've talked about, it can give you some some thrilling uh, experiences inside. And so, I, I just would probably more than anything else recognize why you play. You know, do you play? because you enjoy being with friends on a weekend, you play because it's a way for you to be with your family. Do you play because, you know, it's something that's really going to help you in the workplace. Um, do you play because you just love the way that an iron shot feels when it comes off solidly, you know, just identifying why you do it. And when you're in the space of acknowledging that, then don't get away from that. You know, don't, don't get overly tense about a three foot putt when the real reason why you're out there is to spend time with your family. So, you know, I think the, the main thing for folks is just to, to, for me, to make sure that you recognize why you do it. Um, you do it because you hopefully enjoy it. You do it because you love something about it. Um, and then, of course, you'd like to do any endeavor well, if, if it's an athletic endeavor, a music endeavor, an artistic endeavor, you know, a science endeavor. You would like to probably do it well 
to enjoy it, but also at the same time, give yourself some realistic space to do, to, to evaluate what doing it well means. You know, obviously it doesn't do you any good to hold yourself to a certain standard on the golf course compared to somebody else. Somebody else has different, you know, different time to practice or they have different physical abilities or different whatever. So I always like for people to, to try to do your best to compare yourself to you and, you know, maybe not necessarily what was my best ever. And can I play like that every single day? But you know, how good am I as a putter? How, how, how good am I at rolling the ball a certain distance and making it nestle close to the hole? How good am I at quieting my mind for shots if I'm stressed about it? You know, how good can I be at any little part of this game and comparing yourself to yourself? Um, I think there's much, there's a lot of joy to come from that and a lot of feelings of accomplishment um, that can be reveled in it. So I, I think that's maybe the best advice that I can give people is just to really recognize why you play and to give yourself a realistic uh, expectation of, of what would be something that, that means success for you when you're out there playing or hitting shots. Um, so hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, and you know, just uh, developing a better perspective or always keeping a good perspective and setting goals and achievable goals and achievable stepping stones to reach those goals. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's a good summation of what it takes. Um, So bad idea. And this obviously it goes for life. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's it's not a bad idea to think forward to those rounds, you know, and as you say, set goals, but also be mindful of, you know, what are the traps in previous rounds that I've played in, whether it's somebody that plays fairly often or whether it's somebody that doesn't go off out, out as much, you know, maybe somebody plays, just with their company outing, you know, two times a year, and the last time they played in it, you know, for whatever reason, it was a struggle. And so to think about what was it that caused my struggle and maybe what, how did I feel about it, and recognizing that stuff before it gets to a point of, of destruction in the next corporate outing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's okay to just say, hey, here's my goal for today. This is what could be a challenge for me today. This is how I'm going to approach it if that happens, and this is how I'm going to move on. You know, and you know, maybe it sounds like we're getting a little too serious about this. Or <laughs> it's a weekend outing, but you know, I think truthfully, if you do it because you want to enjoy it, or even in that case, you do it because you want to play well in front of a, a future customer or a client. Heck, it's not a bad idea to to find out how to be ready for emergencies mm-hmm. and and also how to maybe make sure I enjoy this the most as possible. So mm-hmm. I still think there's a lot of room to do that, no matter what level of player you're in. I totally agree, and um, that's the hard part. Is you know, we you're in a a world, and I'm in a world of a lot of players that are playing all the time and playing competitively and are driven. And you know, every day they wake up, and how you know where can I fit in? Not even where can I fit in golf? It's where can I fit in everything else to into my golf? So it's a different world, but a very common world of playing once a week or once a month and um probably more like maybe the world that you're in now uh playing a little bit less and like how do you keep your game up and um and those two things are while they are on a serious side and uh golf is meant to be fun but if you're looking to play better and you're looking to improve it's important to keep that mindset uh of always keeping that perspective and why you're doing it Um, yeah I, i really think so yeah. And, 
know, the other thing I'll touch on that, you know, if you're asking how, how can the weekend warrior, how can the person who enjoys the game and maybe isn't playing at a high amateur or professional level, obviously may not be listening, but they, you know, they're probably going to take lessons. Um, now, I, I don't play a ton of golf myself. My, our assistant coach, Bob Hines, played on the PGA Tour for a number of years and you know played professionally and, and is very skilled at the game, even if he doesn't practice a lot. So, you know, I've got to recognize, hey, if I go out and play with him, I, who am I? <laughs> am I going to compare myself to the guy that did this for a living, um, or am I going to compare myself to me? And I'm, it doesn't mean that my expectations for wanting to succeed are low. It just means that I'm not going to have expectations that are unrealistic. And mm-hmm. so for me, I want to go out and I want to accomplish X. And the reason why I was going to bring that up is because, you know, I, I still would like to play. And when I play, I want to play well. I, I haven't taken a lot of lessons over the years, um, but everybody is going to benefit probably from somebody else on the outside uh, just, you know, taking it in. And, and I took a lesson last week for two hours from, from a guy that I kind of looked uh, to connect with, just to really learn more about how he teaches and what he does. But I, I took a lesson myself as opposed to just picking his brain. Um, and, and even in that lesson, and the reason why I want to bring it up is maybe for the folks who are listening to this, I, I did my best to try to tell them, even with the very limited number of rounds that I play or shots that I hit, these are the things that I struggle with. These are the things that, you know, either embarrass me or I have fear about. Um, and, and I, I try to talk about that with him as much as possible because a, that's going to give him a better appreciation for, you know, what's going on in, in this person he's trying to teach or in the learning process. Um, but B uh, I'm fooling myself and I'm wasting my time and money and his, if I, you know, if you go to a doctor and don't tell him what the symptoms are. So to me, I think it's the best you can do if you do take lessons from folks, or if you do pursue trying to take a lesson from a, a teaching professional or a sports psychologist, you really got to take the time to tell them what you struggle with and you got to tell them what you've had some success with already. And that's going to really direct their teaching. Um, if we're just talking about the physical stuff and, and just hey, position A or position B, heck, they could do that probably from a video camera, you know, in an office somewhere. Um, so I, I, I just think it's really important to kind of talk those things out. Dr. Richard Koop, who uh, I got to know a little bit when I was at UNC as an assistant, and he's been one of the premier golf sports psychologist for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me one time, gosh, it was a couple of decades ago now, but he, he said he worked with tons of golfers, you know, Ryder Cup players, uh, high-level golfers. And even in our, you know, our state of North Carolina, he worked with a lot of race car drivers. Mm-hmm. He said, what's interesting is that golfers, the golfers at every level talked about fear all the time. The race car drivers never talked about mm-hmm. fear. And he said, what's interesting about that is the, the race car drivers, he asked them one of them that that one time, excuse me, and they said, we don't have time to think about fear. By the time you think about fear, you're, you're dead. And so, <laughs> you know, as a golfer, we have too much time to think about what ifs. And so that's where it's an interesting challenge in this game. Um, but that's the beauty of it to me is that there's so many areas and so many hours that you could um, be good at this game, right, right brain, left brain, you know, technical or, or, creative it's just such a, a great endeavor to get involved in and so to me I, I think if you do take lessons just have a, a real open relationship tell them everything that's going on for you and and recognize that um you know there's a lot of areas i can get better at and how we're going to get there fast that's great advice um so as a final question i like asking this question uh to people i've talked to it usually brings out a good response um 
what percentage of golf is physical and what percentage is mental? You know, it, I, I think the big thing that people have said for so many years is that such a massive amount of it is mental. And I don't know that I have a great answer for that. I know that's very an odd question for me to not have an answer for. <laughs> but I think I think the truth is that um, it's it's a physical endeavor. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, while yes, we have mental demons and we have sports psychology and we have pre-shot routine and we have things that you know, there's a lot to work on the mental reacting to shots. Um, pre-rehearsing shots with visualization there's tons and tons and tons of stuff that obviously mentally is a part of the game and people are either good at or not so good at and it does affect their their score but that being said it's still a physical endeavor Hmm. you know we're still moving the golf ball from point a to point b and we have to have a lot of skill to do that and you know while the skill you know obviously where we tap into how much percentage it is it, it really depends on, on the person. I mean, heck, if you're – Jack Nicklaus was really, really smart enough to be able to turn his brain off, right? I mean, there's a lot of great players that know from Tiger to Jack to everybody at the very highest level, they know how to use their brain and not let it get in the way. But at the same time, they also recognize, i got to switch it off and be athletic here. And, um, you know, that usually comes from a, a fair amount of practice, but also practicing – things in the right ways where you're, where you're kind of not going backwards. So anyway, I guess it's, it should be an easy answer. I think it should be a very quick 90, 10, you know, 90 (laughs) mental, 10 physical. But I I think in truth, um, while there's such a big part of it, that's, that's psychological, I still think that it's really cool that it's, it's very physical. You know, it's, it's a, it's a bomber's game in a lot of ways these days, but at the same time, Gosh, I just watched guys at the highest level of Corn Ferry Tour, and the area to me that stood out the most that they weren't as skilled at as I thought they would be would be putting. Hmm. And so, you know, here you are, and, and you got these guys. Now, again, it's, we're just talking about whoever I was watching, right? There, right? I could have been missing the best player who was putting the best that week. But at the same time, I guess what I'm saying is that they have to be skilled at all sorts of things physically. And I, I, I don't know. I might even just go it's a 50-50 hmm. route because mm-hmm. – there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being a little better at striking a golf ball. There's nothing wrong with being able to predict your shot just because of the fact you've rehearsed it so many times. Um, those are very, very big parts of the game. And I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to look away from the physical. Now, here's the, I'll leave you with this. Uh, there's been lots of books written and, and lots of psychologists that would probably give stories similar to these. Um, I've got a friend who is, has a coach been doing it about as long as I have, a little over 20 years. And he had a player that for a little while, and this is at a, um, a Division three level, but you know, probably didn't practice as much, had a little bit more on the academic side on his plate. Um, but he was recognizing that a lot of times when he warmed up before he played in the tournament, he would be filled with not-so-great thoughts because he was hitting these shots that were in warm-up um, just not to his satisfaction. You know, and it was almost putting him in a bad place mentally and in a fearful place or a frustrated place or whatever. So for a while, they decided, you know what, rather than warm up physically, I'm just going to warm up mentally. I'm going to, you know, everybody else is going to have their space on the range to hit their shots, but I'm, I'm going to stretch or I'm going to get my body loose, but I'm going to mentally be rehearsing shots. I'm going to be nothing. I'm going to be doing nothing but rehearsing better golf shots, good golf shots, clean golf shots, you know, solidly struck putts, hold putts, 
all he did was think and and rehearse mentally all the positive things that he could do. And he ended up being an All-American that year. Hmm. And he didn't, he really didn't warm up to hit very many shots before. Now, obviously, that doesn't make much sense to somebody who just told you that calls 50 50 <laughs> and it's physical, mental. But I, I think the, the moral of that story is that it really depends on the person. Hmm. And somebody who is prepared mentally in a really good space um, maybe is going to gain something from the right kind of warm up physically. But it really kind of depends on who you are. And I think there's a lot to be gained mentally. I think you can't ignore either part of the game. Um, and like I said, I, I love that it's right brain, left brain, and knowing when to turn it on and when to turn it off, and and that fits, you know, physical and and mental. So mm-hmm. it's a it's an absolutely great endeavor. Uh, for today, I'll go with fifty fifty. How's that answer? <laughs> I love that answer. The, the <laughs> longer tomorrow, who knows? That's okay. The longer the answer, the better. In, in my experience, so yeah, right. Um, there you go. Well, coach, I appreciate uh, your generous time and um, and and all your honest answers and and. Just uh, giving some advice to players that are listening. I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Mental Golf Show. If you liked it, I'd love it if you subscribed. And if you want some more, you can go to joshnicholsgolf.com. Or I would love to get in touch with you. Just send me a text, 336-399-1825. All right, catch you next time.